Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I return to Tayo, the westernmost point of Lantau, with former Marine Police Commander Les Bird, who joined Hong Kong's Marine Police in 1976 and had a career with them here for more than 20 years. He was an inspector based at Tayo Police Station for 18 months from 1978. Les Bird has recently published his memoir of his career here called A Small Band of Men, An Englishman's Adventures in Hong Kong's Marine Police. In this programme, Les and I take a look at Tayo Police Station, now a heritage hotel, built in 1902 and the scene in 1918 of a murder of a commanding officer by one of his subordinates. You can see the police station on the hill there, now the hotel. The position of the hotel is such that looking over to our left we've got Taiyo Bay, then over in front of us we've got the open South China Sea, and then to our right we've got the Pearl River estuary. So it's a, it's a fabulous position and it, it was built there specifically as an anti-pirate station in 1902 because piracy was rife back in the 1800s and the early uh, 1900s. There was a, a battle here just around the point here called the Battle of Taiyo when a fleet of pirate ships, 34 pirate ships, were taken on by the Royal Navy, a combination of the Royal Navy and an American Navy. And when was that? That was 1855, and 34 pirate ships, there were 14 of the ships were sunk, 500 pirates were either killed or wounded, and over a thousand were arrested. So you can imagine how, how big this business was. There were 1,500 of them willing to take on the navies, and they lost. As the China Mail reported, the pirate fleet formed a dense mass, the larger and heavier armed junks bringing up the rear, every now and then yawing round and firing their broadsides at the boats, from which, in reply, tiny puffs of smoke arose, as the howitzers in their bows discharged their more deadly contents, the shrapnel bursting over the junks and making frightful havoc among their crews. Lieutenants Pegram and Rolando with the launches of the Powhatan, first by volleys of musketry, clearing the decks of the two largest then boarding and driving the pirates overboard at the point of the bayonet. This, however, was not done without a hard struggle, for the miscreants fought with the fury of despair, but they had, of course, no chance against the Marines and Blue Jackets. A couple of years after the station was built in 1902, there was a, a gunfire exchange over on the nearby island of Chiangchao, and three Marine police officers were killed in that exchange. So piracy went on into the early 1900s. So the, the inspector, the European inspector living up in the station, not only had his policing and his welfare, he also had to deal with piracy. Looking up at the former Marine police station now, I mean, where would you have lived? Uh, well, you can see it's a two-storey building that runs along uh, the ledge there of the, of the hill. And the whole top floor was my quarter and the bottom floor was the police station. So as an anti-piracy station, it was built to withstand cannon fire. I'm slapping the walls now. The, the walls are two feet thick. And then on each window, we've got these huge heavy metal shutters, which are still here in the hotel. They've, they've actually left them in. You can see what it would achieve if you closed them. There was no way that a bullet would be able to get through. And then they've got these vertical slits in the middle of each shutter so that the officers inside could return fire at the guys who were shooting at the station. 
So you can imagine what it was like in, in the early 1900s here. They would actually have gun battles with boats in the bay, which is just there, where, we, where we're looking over now. I mean, the position of, of Tayo Police Station is, is quite unique. We've, as you can see, we, we've got the Pearl River estuary on the right, South China Sea in the middle, and the, the Tayo Bay to the left. And over there, as you can see due west, is Macau. We can actually see the, the outlines of the buildings on the horizon. We, we're nearer to Macau standing here than we are to Star Ferry in Central, um, which uh, sort of gives you an idea of how remote we are from... And in those days, with no road and a limited ferry service, we really were cut off out here. Now, most of your time that you were spending in the building, I mean, a lot of the time you were on the move. I mean, did you, did you do a five-day week or you were permanently on, on shift? No, you, you're, you're on 24-hour call for the whole time. I used to take a few hours here and there, but I would have to leave my availability and they would have to be able to find me. And it, with the communications as they were, then that wasn't really very convenient. So basically, I would, I would take my day off here. I'd, I'd just be upstairs in the, in the quarter upstairs. Now in the quarter, so you'd have your office there and most of the time then you were dealing with the main office, which was, what would, that, what would the headquarters have been? For the um, Marine Police, Marine, Marine Police headquarters is still there today. It's it's the the big building on the hill at Chimsa Choi, which is also now a boutique hotel. So that would be my my headquarters, and dispatches would be sent from there. My office was actually not upstairs; it was just here, next to the report room. The room that's directly behind us here, where you can hear the telephone, that that's the, now the hotel reception. That was the report room. That's where members of the public would come in to make a report, and this is where the hub of the station, this is, this is the heart of the station, they would be manned by a sergeant and a couple of constables, um, and they would handling all the communications and any, any reports coming in from members of the public. So that, that would be through this door here. The holding cells, how long would you keep somebody in there? Uh, maximum, maximum 24 hours. They would be in there because we thought they'd, they'd done something wrong, by which time they could be sent out on a police launch to court. They would, they would attend court the following morning. So a, a police launch would arrive that morning and uh, they wouldn't be in there for more than about 12, 12 hours. And what could some of those misdemeanours be? Um, uh, uh, to be honest, whilst I was here, we didn't actually arrest anyone for any criminal activity. The majority were illegal immigrants that we'd found that were a threat to fleeing. Most of the illegal immigrants wouldn't. Once, once they were, had been arrested, they would, they would sit about around a courtyard in front of us and, and behave themselves until the land police came along and, and took them away. If we felt somebody was going to cause a bit of trouble, we put them in the holding cell. With having two foot walls, I mean, just from an insulation perspective, never mind the, the bullets as well, I mean, was it cold here? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, winter, we're exposed here to the, to the South China Sea. So the, the beautiful fireplaces you see in every room, I would activate mine in the office's mess. I, I'd have a, a wood fire going in the evenings. So I'd finish my day's work in the office down here on the ground floor. I'd go upstairs and Sam my armour would have built my fire and I'd be up there reading a book. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad life. No. So you did this for how long? Uh, 18 months. From the middle of 1978 until the end of 1979, which was the end of my first three-year tour in Hong Kong. Do you have a bit of nostalgia being back? 
Yeah. It's funny, I, you know, memories. Don't ask me what I had for breakfast yesterday, but I can tell you everything that happened here in the 18 months, virtually day by day. I just have very, very clear memories. When I come back, I love it. I feel like I want to stay a bit longer. Now, there was quite... I mean, you've described to me the uh, Battle of Tayo, which I didn't know about, in 1855. In 1918, there was quite a shooting here. Yeah, it was one of my predecessors, an officer by the name of Thomas Cecil Glendenning. He was the European officer in charge of the station in 1918. That week of the shooting, he'd arrested one of his own men for larceny, petty theft, and sent him off to uh, Calderon Magistry, where he'd been found guilty of theft. And the, the magistrate allowed him 24 hours bail, out on 24 hours bail to come back to the station and collect his belongings. He was an Indian constable by the name of Teja Singh, and he came back and managed to acquire a gun. And he walked, we're now standing outside the report room, so Glenn Denning would be sitting at his desk right there. Teja Singh managed to get a gun from the barrack room, which is just to my right, it's about, I guess it's about 30 meters. So he walked along here, he saw Glenn Denning sitting at his desk and he shot him in the chest, one bullet. Glenn Denning fell forward and Teja Singh put another bullet into the top of his head, killing him instantly. That wasn't the end of the drama. Mrs. Glenn Denning was standing right here in the doorway, talking to her husband when it happened. Now, why Teja Singh decided to turn the gun on her, I don't know. But she was already running down that corridor in front of us because the steps up to the court are at the end of the corridor, we can go along there and have a look in a minute. Before she turned to run up the stairs, Singh shot several more bullets. Fortunately, he missed her, but you can see a wooden louver door. A piece of wood from the a bullet hit one of those, and the, a splinter from the louver door went into her left eye, blinding her, actually. But she managed to get up the stairs, followed by Singh with his gun. The reason, I assume, why she was, in addition to trying to get away from being shot, her baby, one-year-old baby son was upstairs. So she was obviously adamant in getting there and saving her son. She managed to barricade herself into one of the bedrooms where the baby was, and Singh couldn't get in. Some of the report room staff went round the back, and she managed to throw the baby out, and the, and the baby was saved. Singh couldn't get into, into the bedroom. So he had to think about that, I suppose, and he decided to set fire to the station. Why he was doing all this, this after activity, we, we'll never know. Because after he'd set fire to the station, he turned the gun on himself and, and took his own life. So when a marine police patrol, which had been summoned, arrived, Singh was already dead upstairs. And so the, the wife survived? The wife survived. She lost the use of an eye. The baby survived. And the dreadful thing that happened, because of the remote area around here, the, the body of her husband was taken back to town on a police launch, together with the body of Singh, yes. lying side by side on the deck. So she was obviously very seriously hurt as well at the time. So she had to go back into town to get medical treatment and that must have taken three or four hours. So you can imagine the trauma of what's gone on here over the past few hours. And now she's being taken off to hospital with her husband that's dead and, and the guy lying next to him. 
Yeah, very difficult. Do we know why? Was it just that he was mentally ill or did he have an antipathy towards his superior? All the junior police officers working in the station were Indian at the time. And I think the fact that he'd been accused or caught, really he lost face with, with his fellow officers. And when he, he got caught? He got caught for theft. They basically laid a trap for him. They, they suspected he was stealing money from the other constable's lockers and they left some money in a wristwatch around and it was found later in his locker. So he was charged with theft. So he lost face and I think it must have got, well, it obviously got to him when he came back. He wrote two letters whilst he was upstairs before he, he shot himself saying that he was sorry for bringing disgrace to his family. He was adamant that he'd been framed and he hadn't, he hadn't done it. But by then it was too late. He'd already, he'd already taken his own life. The baby mm. that gets thrown. You've met the daughter. I've met Glenn Denning's granddaughter, yeah. So my predecessor... And then the baby that was thrown was called... David. David, David was the son um, who was thrown. He's been back to see where his father had been murdered. David's daughter arrived in 1978 when I was here, Sandra. And, yeah, so I met, I met David's daughter the baby's daughter, 60 years later. Yes, how interesting. But yeah, quite a drama. And, and I mean, that's the, probably one of the key things that happens at this station, isn't it? Yeah, well, it, it was the remoteness of it. That, I mean, several things happened after that. The police realised that leaving a young foreigner in charge of the western half of Lantau, he tended to be isolated and he could get into trouble if a lack of communication or a misunderstanding due to language. So they made three changes. First of all, they put a telephone in. That was my telephone. The actual telephone that I had was the telephone that they put in in 1919. It was a big black Bakelite thing. It took up half my desk. It had a trumpet on one end. And I couldn't t call anyone. The, the, the calls had to come into the report room here. And then the the duty sergeant, if it was a call for me, he would wind the handle on the side and it would ring in my office down the other end of the corridor. I would then pick it up and I'd have to shout down the end because they could, no one could hear me. So, and if it rained, the telephone system just didn't work at all. So anyway, that was the one improvement. <laughs> so during the typhoon season, you couldn't communicate, really? No. No. Well, that's good and bad, isn't it? Uh, it didn't seem to bother. I mean, in those days, it, you just got on with it. You didn't need to tell people all the time what you were doing. You just got on, did it? You don't. You don't need to be in constant touch. The other thing they'd changed here is they put a big metal grill door at the top of the inspectors' quarters. So, if I felt I was going to be murdered by one of my staff, I could lock myself in upstairs. I never did. But. <laughs> And the other thing was they insisted that there should be two European officers here working at any one time. So that came at what stage? Uh, immediately after uh, Glenn Denning uh, had been murdered. Oh, so you had another European working with you? No, that one got, <laughs> that one sort of got lost between the cracks. <laughs> Former Marine Police Officer Les Bird there, who I'll return to later in the programme. Sandra Trimble is Thomas Glendinning's granddaughter and she came to live in Hong Kong from Australia with her family for a few years from 1978 and visited Taiyo Police Station at that time. She's also been doing some history research on her family. I phoned her in Australia and asked her about that Taiyo visit. Well, we'd actually gone to Hong Kong because my husband 
had a job with the Hong Kong government. And so my grandmother, before we left, hadn't really spoken much about what had happened until she found out that we were going to live in Hong Kong. So going back was quite extraordinary for us. We had our daughters with us as well, our three daughters. So it was good to go and see the, the police station, as it was then, and get some idea of where my grandmother had lived. Now, your father was actually the baby that was thrown yes. by your grandmother to, to sort of try yes. and save his life. That's right. Yes, he was born in Hong Kong in 1917, so he was not quite 18 months old when um, his father was murdered. Now, your grandmother, she was how old when she actually told you about this then, when you actually came to Hong Kong? She was probably well into her 80s. And she'd ne- had she never spoken, spoken about it before? No, not really, no. She had a glass eye, and as children we were told not to throw stones because that's how Grandma had lost her eye. In actual fact, a piece of timber had ricocheted off the staircase balustrade, apparently, in the police station, and um, that had gone into her eye. What a traumatic experience for her. Yes, yes. How did you feel to be back? I mean, did you sort of feel odd about the fact that, you know, this was concerning your family, really? Well, I'd always been interested in family history and we didn't know very much about it then until we actually got there and heard the story. So after that, I did some research and we found various papers. The I think it was called Offbeat, a police magazine, did an article about us visiting. For me, it was going and, and finding part of our family roots. How many years were you in Hong Kong? We were there for just on 10 years. We left in 1987. When you went to Hong Kong and, your, as you say, your grandmother... So your, was your grandmother in Australia or...? Yes, no, she was in Australia. And so she told you a few details. What did she tell you then? Did she sort of give you lots of details or just the bare facts? No, just that he was murdered. He was buried in Happy Valley Cemetery. Then she also told us about his brothers that lived in Hong Kong. He had three brothers um, who went to Hong Kong about the same time as he did. Then one went on to Shanghai and the other two worked for the Hong Kong tramway. And so they continued living in Hong Kong? Yes, yes. One family was there until just before the Second World War. And one of Dad's cousins apparently was in the Hong Kong volunteers during the Second World War. And then he disappeared, mysteriously disappeared after the war. And we've never solved that one. Oh, interesting. So Mm -hmm. how did you feel about the Taiyo police station now being a boutique hotel, a heritage boutique hotel? A few visits ago... Not, not long after it was opened, actually, we went over and had a look. It's a beautiful site, sitting on the point there and looking out across the sea. And I think they did a, an extraordinarily good job in restoring it. And But keeping the history, we were quite impressed. The murder at Taiyo Police Station is now more than 100 years ago, but does it still resonate for you as a granddaughter? Yes, and quite often we... Actually, we've got family coming out from England shortly and they're coming via Hong Kong and they're actually going to Taiyo. So that's my eldest brother um, and his family and they're going to visit to have a look and see what it's like. And I believe they're also going to Happy Valley to look at the grave. Interestingly, the gravestone has on it gone but not forgotten. So various grandchildren of, of like my my brothers, have gone and stood by the grave and had their photo taken there, so that's rather poignant. What do you know about, I mean, other than the poor man uh, being shot, what what do you actually know about your grandfather? Do you know actually what sort of character he was? Well, I know from photos I've seen, he was a, a fairly tall, solid man. I think he was fairly easygoing. 
I don't know a great deal about him other than sort of that. There is an interesting letter that my grandmother wrote to one of her sisters in back in Australia when she actually arrived in Hong Kong in 1916. And that was interesting because she remarked about how the women in Hong Kong pulled heavy loads along the road. Uh, she remarked about the climate, about it being so hot. She was looking forward to going out to Tayo. This was sort of just a couple of days after she'd actually arrived. And she was talking about going and buying the furniture to furnish the police station at Tayo. And your grandmother, Daisy Glendening, what sort of person was she? She was a pretty tough lady. She actually outlived three husbands. Oh, wow. Um, well, she came back to Australia and after a couple of years she married somebody that she had gone to school with. But unfortunately he'd been gassed in the, in the First World War and so she nursed him for two years and then he died. And then when my father was about 14, she married a Scot who we used to call Grandcock and he was a, a painter and decorator. And that's the grandfather that I, I remember. Oh. And so she outlived a lot of them. And she lived until she was about 95, I think. Within your family, have you, got, have you sort of established some archives about your grandfather at all? Yes, yeah. I've got quite a bit of history of the, the family, his family, where they came from um, back in the UK and also where they lived in Australia before he went. Apparently the four brothers worked for somebody called Lamb, I think, who owned um, a horse stud in Sid, just out of Sydney. Oh, right. And they took they got to Hong Kong by taking horses by ship to Hong Kong and then some of them going on up to Shanghai, apparently. And that's how they came. That was about 1906, I think. And then the older brother, he encouraged the others to come back again. Apparently they came back to Australia and... and to come back to Hong Kong again and to work over there. So that was when Robert Glendinning went off to Shanghai and he worked on the Shanghai-Nanjing Railway quite a number of years and the other two, as I said before, worked on the Hong Kong Tramway. Sandra Trimble there, the granddaughter of Thomas Glendinning, who was shot dead at Tayo Police Station in 1918. What used to be the report room with the holding cells when Les Bird was an inspector at Tayo is now the reception for the Tayo Heritage Hotel and where I had a quick chat with the hotel's assistant restaurant manager, Harry Ho. Actually, I live in Dongchong. It's the same Nantau Island, but, but not the local villagers. Many staff is the local villagers, but some of them is retired at the official village. More than 90% is the elderly. So very difficult to, to hire the local, local person. So some of our staff is uh, from outside. Mm. Now, I understand within the restaurant here, you actually are involved in the local food. Yes, yes. Most famous food at Tile is the salty fish, uh, shrimp paste and uh, uh, mountain magnolia. And we use for uh, a crossover with the Western food, make some special dishes. What was the third one you said? Mountain begonia is uh, one of the uh, herbs of Tao grow at the uh, top of the mountain. Its color is the uh, red color at the back. It tastes a little bit sweet and sour. The villagers like to make it dry and then use for, for, for drinks. And we can uh, use this to make a jelly to put on the top of the cheesecake. To make the mountain begonia cheesecake or some uh, cocktail or mocktail with the mountain begonia juice. Yeah. And what, do you like f shrimp paste? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and how would you use it? Would you use it in a stew or? 
Shrimp paste is um, we mainly use for steam, steam the meat or steam the rice. Taste and the smell is very good. Have some fresh shrimp smell come come from the shrimp paste. And so you just mix it in. At our restaurant, we use for some crossover. Maybe it's the shrimp paste, a uh, pork chop bun, and deep fried chicken wing with with the shrimp paste, and the seafood shrimp paste fried rice, something like this. Interesting. As a young man coming from Chongqing, have you learned by being part of Taiyo Police Station for seven years, have you learned a lot about your own Lantau history? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Because before we work here, we we need to do do many homework <laughs> <laughs> about the the history of the Taiyo and and this police station, and many too as it's very interesting to to ask more more details about this hotel. So so. We need to learn many, many things. Yeah, before we we work here. <laughs> Harry Ho, the Taiyo Heritage Hotel's assistant restaurant manager, and now to return to Les Bird. Later in his career, Les would head up the small boat unit, which was tasked with combating the smuggling that was rife at the end of the 1980s and into the 90s. It's a subject I'll return to on the program with Les Bird next year. But just to finish off. Here's a couple of anecdotes from him about those anti-smuggling operations. Yeah, the the speed in which those、uh, Daife slick operations、uh, happen can be exemplified by a case I was involved in. We intercepted a Daife on the eastern side of Merz Bay, very very close to the Chinese border,、um, and when we stopped it, it had a. Mercedes Benz in the Daife. We stopped it, overpowered the crew, and they'd been so quick at the pier that they'd actually left the keys in the car, and the engine was still running. So it was literally pier to Daife and off, and no one had had time to actually turn the, the ignition off. So we did a quick radio check back to Marine Police Headquarters with the number of the the car. He did a quick vehicle check, and then called. The number that the car was registered in, and the guy who answered the phone—it was about two in the morning, by the way—he、um, answered the phone, and, they, and he, the, the marine controller said,、um, "Your car has just been found." And the guy said, "No, I've just put it in the garage downstairs about 45 minutes ago." And this was in Kowloon. And the marine controller said, "No, no, it's not. Would you mind going and checking?" And he thought he was being. Hoaxed or something, and it took a little bit of persuasion. Eventually, went downstairs, got out of bed, went downstairs, came back, and said, "My car's missing." And the marine controller said, "No, it's not missing. We know where it is. It's in Mers Bay, not close to the Chinese border." It had taken them about an hour, hour and fifteen minutes to actually steal the car in Kowloon, and it was just entering to, into Chinese waters. So, that's an example of how quick they were. After the gate was put in across Tolo Channel to stop them. That didn't actually stop them.、Uh, it stopped the dieves, but the smuggling syndicates came up with different ideas on how to try and beat us. So one day, a fishing vessel approached and requested permission to go through. He produced his his documents. He, everything was in order. So how did you move the gate?、Um, oh, it was a, a chain、uh, pulley that just stretched across the the, the gap, if you like. And if someone had tried to 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 go over it, they would have ripped their propellers off. But you could you could open and close it. So this fishing vessel requested everything was in order. He was waved through, and as he was going through, the policeman at the gate noticed that his stern was a little bit low in the water. It looked a bit odd. 
and they asked him to come back, so he came back and he said, oh, look, it's because my nets are down, I'm, t I'm, I'm fishing before I go out. They didn't buy that, so they lifted, made him lift his nets out. And what was in his net initially, they thought, was a whale. It was a huge black thing. And they made him put it on the deck and open it up, and it was, it was a neoprene bag. And inside the bag was a Mercedes-Benz saloon. <laughs> it had been towed under the water completely dry in the neoprene bag became known as the car in the condom case <laughs> of course it did <laughs> that's a great story so when was that uh just after the barrier went in so that would be 1991 or 1992 my thanks to sandra trimble and harry ho the bit of pirate music you heard with the battle of tayo is by finnish composer anti martikainen and my thanks to Les Bird for the Tayo tour. Les Bird is the author of A Small Band of Men, an Englishman's adventures in Hong Kong's Marine Police. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.